This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fuss-free, continuous delivery, check them out at CodeShip.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgmo.com and check them out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 129 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Dave Smith. Hello, world. Merrick Christensen. Hey, guys. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Ryan Doan. Hi, how are y'all? You want to introduce yourself really quick, Ryan? Uh, sure. Yeah, my name is Ryan Doan. I've been a full-stack web developer for about 10 years now, working at a number of startups at Ancestry.com as well. Not a startup. <laughs> and a little company within Ancestry called Ancestry DNA. I now work for Client Success. Uh, trying to take on the subscription renewal services for SaaS companies, specifically. But uh, recently, when I moved over to Client Success, I moved from being full stack and working in with a Java backend to being full-time front-end architect. And so that's what I do now. I'm the front-end architect at Client Success. So why are we talking about backends, then? And we want yes. to keep our clean ratings, so... <laughs> All right, we'll keep it clean if we have to. So I got into backend as a service uh, about a year ago, got, started getting interested in it. And it all started from, uh, I took a, a year stint doing Android development. And I actually got bored of Android development after a year because there just was not quite as much to do in Android as there is in your typical full stack web development. And, you know, people who do Android, they'll probably disagree with me for that. But I found that when I was working in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then a, a full back-end stack, there was just a whole lot more to think about. But when I moved back from Android development to doing web dev full-time, I found that there was almost too much to think about to keep my sanity, I guess you could say. So as I kind of thought about, at the time I was working at Ancestry DNA, and as I kind of thought about how engineers are taking the time to compare DNA sequences and then they have to turn around and have the experience to, you know, open up Photoshop and Illustrator and slice and dice mocks for use on the web. I realized that there was kind of a disconnect there and I started uh, digging into what is backend as a service. So that's kind of where, where my interest came in. Uh, should we talk a bit about what backend as a service is? Yeah, that'd be great. Yes, please. All right. So back into the service, it, it kind of helps to have a little history lesson. So let's go back to 2007, 2008, a monumental change in the world when iPhone was released. And after people got sick of, you know, the iFart applications, <laughs> Apple for released. The, for the record, I never got sick of those. Apple, you never got, you still got it. You, you bumped all your coworkers to, with it, huh? Yeah, I'm trying to raise funding right now for an iFart application. <laughs> Well, that's good, because I've got the lightsaber app. That's the one I'm raising funding for. So. <laughs> Is so, yours on anyway. Kickstarter, Merrick? 
Absolutely. It's the only way to raise money these days. America, I fart. That's I, find the, I find the Kickstarter community is enthusiastic about farts in general. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, <clears throat> back to back into the service. So in 2008, Apple released the iPhone SDK. And this allowed people to build their own apps. Later in the year, they had the they had push notifications that they added to that. But you had to set up a backend to be able to do those push notifications. And it turns out that Objective C is really not the best language for doing backend web development or services development. Now, there's probably someone who's done it out there. I I'm not you know I pity the fool. I'll put it that way. And so with all these, at this time there was also a, a chance for Lots of little companies to build these applications. There wasn't a lot of expertise in iPhone development because it was brand new. And so uh, lots of new companies came in, started building these applications, and realized that all the back-end services that people were requesting were the same. So they had to have user management, of course, data encryption, some analytics, and push notifications, and then a place to store and sync information. And that's pretty much the same across most mobile apps. If you look at them, they've got to have those basics. And so these companies decide, you know what, why are we rewriting a backend every time? Let's just create a generic backend and uh, make it available to all of the applications that we write. And so was born MBAS, or the mobile backend as a service. And it's grown since then. Now there's over 30 different vendors for backend as a service. And it's really come into its own. There's actually a few that are really big, well-known ones. But it all started with phone development. You'll see that a lot when you look through the literature out there, that they are mostly focused right now on phone development. So that's kind of a, a brief history of backend as a service. Some of the big players in out there are uh, Convey, Parse, Meteor. It can be considered one. Any presence, backend list, Firebase. But Amazon and Google and Microsoft have all gotten in. They've got their own cloud offerings for backend as a service. And those are all mostly focused on phone development right now. But as these systems have continued to be built out, people have realized that, hey, there's more use to these than just using it for phone development. We can also use it for backend of websites or backend of other applications and then share the data. So Convey in particular, they, they've got a cool uh, system. They focus on enterprises and they focus on tying together different APIs within a big enterprise organization and then making those available for uh, mobile application development and then other greenfield application development. When you say to tying together APIs, like, do you mean that they proxy APIs or they create new APIs for existing services? What do you mean by that? Typically, they're proxying APIs. So they... Like I said, Convey is focused mostly on enterprises, and so they tie together like Salesforce and your accounting systems and all these big systems that are typically really hard to get access to, and they'll create, they'll tie into those the APIs that those systems have, and then they'll surface an API that's realistic for the regular developer to use. Way cool. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially for Salesforce. What are sort of the bare minimum requirements that you should be looking for in a backend as a service? Like, do some of these self-hosted ones, like Hoodie or Meteor, make sense, or do they are they just not there yet? Are they missing out? What what are the requirements you should look for? 
Yeah, so let's talk a bit about this, the spectrum of backend as a service. There's really so many different types of backend as a service, and that's because there's so many different types of applications that we're building. So it's hard to say a minimum. Uh, I'd say you've got to have user management and security down pat with each of these backends. Typically, you'll want to have a database as a service included as part of that and a place to store user data and surface it. I guess if you have those three things, you can be considered a backend as a service. But to be really useful, people talk about if you're replacing your backend as a service, or sorry, your backend with a service, you need to be able to write your own custom services within that backend as a service as well. And so a lot of these provide APIs internally to be able to do that. It seems like there would be kind of two classes of, of this sort of thing, right? So the basic level in my in my mind would be just that it provides basic CRUD operations, create, read, update, delete. So you can throw stuff on the pile, you can read it, you can update it if you need to, and then you can pull it back out if you want it. And then on top of that, then, you know, if you need some custom work, then you build that in one way or the other. What's kind of the standard for how to extend and build custom stuff where you need to? Oh, man. So each of them is different. Well, I guess the standard way is they have a, a language that you can write in. Often it's what the back end was written in itself uh, that just allows you to get access to the data through APIs that they surface and do whatever you want with the data and then surface that through endpoints that you create. Got it. So maybe I can back up a little bit more, uh, go back a little to a list of technologies that I was expected to understand when I was working at one of my last jobs. And I, I think about the list of technologies that you work with and see if it's similar. So I was expected to learn and understand HTML5, CSS3 with transitions and SAS and Compass and object-oriented JavaScript, custom JavaScript frameworks, uh, and then some Angular JS. So a couple different software uh, as a service vendors that we had, lots of little JavaScript libraries. That's all front end stuff. Then back end, we were a Java shop with Spring Data, Spring Security, Spring MVC, Hibernate, aspect oriented programming within Java, and lots of, again, lots of little libraries in Java and RESTful services that we were surfacing. And then I was also expected to learn and understand unit testing with Jasmine for JavaScript, JUnit for Java, and test runners for each of those. And then build systems, so Maven builds for Java, RequireJS for JavaScript with Grunt and CSS minification, all those plugins within Grunt. This was a, you know, a year and a half ago, so it was the new thing, right? Jenkins build server for Java, Go deployment tool. And the list goes on and on and on as to what a typical senior engineer needs to know. I mean, so like, like not very many though, right? No, not very many, right? I'm I'm getting. So (laughs) So let's go on. So Hibernate or some ORM, SQL Server or some other server, you know, uh, SQL or NoSQL, and then understanding Linux and Tomcat configuration, security patches and OS updates, debugging tools, you know, goes on. So. At some point, my brain just kind of exploded. By the way, I'm not complaining here. I think that understanding and learning all of these things is fun, and that's why I'm a web developer. But I just want to point out that there's a ton of overhead that we keep in our minds as engineers. Write down your list sometime and, and see. You're so right. I One thing I've noticed working on my current team is that as we bring on new developers, I'll say things like, oh, yeah, you should be able to use StatsD for that. And they're like, what's that? I'm like, oh. I guess you weren't here when we added that to the architecture as well, you know? 
That's right, yeah. A dozen other technologies with the same problem. So if we go back to computer science beginnings, there was, I can't remember the guy's name, but he said that computer science is just a thousand abstractions. We don't write ones and zeros anymore, right? We're JavaScript people. And that's a long ways from Java even. And so if we can abstract the back end and make it so that we don't have to worry about that as front end engineers, then to me, that's just awesome to be able to get that complexity moved out of the way and uh, focus on what my customers really want, which is an awesome application that meets their needs. Yeah, totally agree. And it's it's so interesting, too. You, you mentioned all of the different things that we really do have to understand. And so this really eliminates all of the back-end stuff. And so then we can focus on providing great stuff for our clients because we only have to focus on the front-end technologies. Yeah, that's totally right. Yeah. So do you have examples of applications that have worked really well on this that you're aware of on this kind of setup? So obviously, phone applications are great. I was trying to look. I wrote down a list. Yeah, but usually they provide their own functionality. They're almost like the front-end, back-end. And then the back-end as a service just provides a way to connect the data together or to persist it somewhere off of the device. That's right. And with single-page applications in JavaScript, I think that's kind of where web development is moving, is to becoming an application, and then you persist the data somewhere else. Of course, it's all integrated and tied together, but it seems to me that's the direction that application development is moving on the browser. So here's my list um, of people who use different backends as a service. So, and I don't know the specific applications, so I can't call those out, but Philips, Regent, Salesforce, Splunk, USA Today, Cadillac, Hipmunk, all these are just pulled from different backend as a service vendors. So anyway, there's some examples. If you look at, have any of you guys used Firebase? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So Firebase is a prime example of just something that you can quick and dirty get something up and, uh, up and going. So they have on their site, one of their examples is a whiteboard application that you can build. Have any of you done that? No. Okay. So you can get on there and just pull down this example code that is a digital whiteboard that can be shared across anyone. And uh, Firebase specifically, they do their forte and backend as a service is three-way data binding. I know some people don't like that term, but it just tying the data together so that when I make a change on my end, it goes and is pushed to another user across the world, right? And so they have this example application that's a whiteboard. Well, there's a company called Envision that builds a UI sharing tool, a UI development tool. I guess I don't know how to describe it. It's what we use at my work that our designer will build mocks and then he'll throw them into Envision and then people comment on them back and forth. So anyway, Envision took Firebase and integrated it with their existing service by adding a real-time whiteboard to their application, just like the example that is on Firebase's website. I mean, not not just like they've added a bunch of cool features on top of it, but it allows you to just dig in and communicate more effectively with each other in real time. So there's one example where uh, backend as a service really shines. I have some I have kind of a comment slash question on it, but sure. It seems to me like for these applications, like a like a whiteboard or a chat application that has pretty minimal business logic and mm-hmm. pretty minimal authentication requirements, the backend as a service seems like a really good way to go. But as soon as you need to have some logic that you don't want to have to re-implement across all the clients you're going to support, like say, for example, you're going to have an iPhone app and a web app, and they need to be able to communicate with each other. 
using the same backend service. How do you solve that without, re, you know, repeating yourself a lot? So you end up implementing all the business rules in the iPhone app and then implementing them again in the web app. Good question. So uh, that's where these, this custom code comes into play. Uh, like I said, most of the more advanced backend as a service systems, so they allow you to drop in some code and you can do all your business logic still on the server. And so if you have just a few places where you need business logic and then you're mostly a CRUD app, I think that's a great place for backend as a service right now. Does Firebase support that? Ooh, I actually don't know specifically with Firebase. Which ones are you familiar with that do support that kind of mode? So Convey and uh, Apache User Grid and BassBox and Loopback. Loopback is a JavaScript one. And Backendless. I mean, <laughs> these are all a bunch of names. I'm just throwing names okay. out there. So I'm trying to get my head around when a service is a backend as a service versus like infrastructure as a service or platform as a service. So like, for example, Amazon AWS has Elastic Beanstalk. Google has uh, Python uh, one. It's not Google Compute Cloud, but the uh, is it app engine, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. you know, like those, those, would you not consider those backend as a service providers? Yeah. So there's a real fuzzy line between backend as a service and, and a platform as a service. I think the difference for me is that a platform as a service, it's like, I've heard it said, it's bring your own code. There's a great article by a guy named Brian O'Neill talking about all the different layers of abstraction that we have in web development. He talks about infrastructure as a service first. Infrastructure as a service is like Rackspace, AWS, or Azure VMs, whatever, just a, a virtual machine. And that's where you bring your own application container and your whole application, right? You set up Tomcat or you set up Nginx or whatever it is you use to run your application. And then, yeah, the next level, like you're talking about, is platform as a service. And that's where you bring your own services and your application. And so you deploy your WAR file out there or your PHP files out there. And the platform as a service automatically scales that and takes care of all of the infrastructure needs that you might care about. Yeah, I tend to think of the platform as a service as like the Google App Engine or Heroku or some of the other ones out there like that where effectively, you know, so they're not the infrastructure as a service where they're providing you like a server that you have to set up on your own. They've done the setup, and as long as you meet their qualifications, then they will host your application for you. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly the platform right. as a service. Yep. So then the next level of that is backend as a service. And so they've set up all of that already. In fact, they might even be built on top of a platform as a service. But they've brought their own code that is most of the backend that you care about. So it, it has a bunch of REST endpoints to a database. You can configure your own REST points either through a UI or through just configuration files. And then you bring your own front-end application on top of that. It can be a single-page app. It can be an iOS or Android app, but it's kind of the next level of abstraction there. Yeah, I think where the line gets blurred a little bit is where you're providing your own endpoints on top of the back end as a service. So oh, yeah, uh, the parts sure. of it that are programmable is that platform as a service or back end as a service. And, you know, I can see the line being a little bit fuzzy there. So is it fair to say that if I write code for a particular backend as a service, like Apache User Grid, that it will tend to not be portable to other backends as a service? Yep, that's Whereas fair to say. with platform as a service, there's a pretty good chance that I can port. Like if I'm writing a Heroku node app, you know, there's a pretty good chance I could port it to any number of other places and have it work, right? Yep. 
Although, okay. well, it depends. So platform as a service, there's actually lock-in there as well. So it depends on what services you use on top of that platform. So most platform as a service providers give you extra stuff that you can use that make your life a whole lot easier as a developer if you're going to stay on their system. Like what? So like, is it uh, EC2 with Amazon that is a database, but they also provide extra stuff that's not just SQL? No. Uh, is that not EC2? I can't no. remember what it is from Amazon. I think you might be thinking of DynamoDB. With Amazon. Oh, that's it. Yeah. And then uh, there's Cloud Compute from Google that uh, you tie to their APIs and they allow you to do a bunch of cool processing on your data, but you're again tied to their APIs. So so what about uh, the near future? What do you think are things that are missing in the back end of the service world, whether as far as features and existing services or new services that you think may pop up to solve existing needs? As far as new back end of the service systems or as far yeah, as or people adopting them? Uh, no, new new features, either new features on existing services or new services. That's like, what do you think's missing right there, right now, that could be solved in the next year or two? Whew, man, I'm probably not the best person to answer that, honestly. So here's, let me just run through a list. Of... How about an easy calculus question instead? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Let me run through a list of features that these back end of the service providers have already, and then you tell me what might be missing. So they've already got user management, full data encryption and security, load balancing, social logins with Facebook, Google, XYZ, uh, as well as logins through LDAP and Active Directory, data and file storage, offline data caching, real-time data synchronization, again, depending on the system, analytics based on your rest, the RESTful endpoints it provides, easy integration with third-party APIs just through some mappings, CRUD operations that are automatically set up, media streaming, push notifications, email services. They've already got different environment setups. You can run dev test live or dev test prod, whatever you want to call it, uh, and versioning. And then most of these will also take the settings that you've put into it and automatically generate some code for you to plop into your app or uh, an SDK for you to be able to access all these endpoints that you just created. So you can just plop that SDK into iOS or Android or your HTML5, and then you can just run with it. Say, I need user X or user 125 or with all of their email addresses, and it'll just go fetch that data for you, and you've got it. I mean, those are kind of the most apps that I've worked on. That's all the basic stuff. And then anything after that is custom to whatever app I'm building. Right. It's, now, you didn't specifically mention real-time in that list, right? But that's also another feature. Oh, right? yeah. Real-time is in that list, too. Yep. Some of the, did, I, uh, did I miss it? Did you name it? I did name it. Oh. <laughs> that's all right. He was just being polite. <laughs> get, get your head out of the calculus and back <laughs> into on, the man. <laughs> I can't answer those calculus questions, but I did get that one. <laughs> so I heard recently that one of the things that makes backend as a service less applicable in certain scenarios is if you need data that has any kind of relationship. Discuss. No, Discuss. <laughs> I'm not sure how that would make it less a a applicable. Most data needs relationships, right? And so if you go look at these services, they all provide a way of tying things together. It's pretty much the NoSQL argument of relationships. It's how you structure your data to create that relationship. 
a lot of these are built on NoSQL and you have full access to getting that data in and out and setting up the relationships that you need between objects. Yeah, I was going to say, I fiddle around with a little bit with Parse and I've looked at some of the other ones, but I haven't actually used them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, really what it is, is some of them have referential features. So you essentially say this references that, you know, and then you can just use them. And then you've got other things where, you know, you put the references in and then you have to go look up in the other API endpoint. So like users and posts. So, Mm -hmm. you, you know, just as an example. And so, you know, in some systems you would go and you would look up posts and it would index across them based on their user ID, and in other systems, it would actually do it the other way. So uh, you could just go and do users, and then it would give you the link to the endpoint that would pull it, or you could, uh, you know, it might embed them, or, you know, whatever. And it just depends on how it's set up and what you want to do with it. But they all work a little bit differently, and so there are definitely yeah. trade-offs between them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So as you go looking at different back-end-as-a-service technologies, you got to really focus on what you're trying to get out of it. What do you need in, in a system? Some of the pros, some of the reasons that we, you should look at back into the service, maybe we can go into that. Would that be helpful? Mm-hmm. So some of the pros are it's a, it's a faster time to market because you've already got the whole back end written. Uh, there's lower cost. It's a lower initial cost, you know, because you don't have to pay your back end engineers to build anything. And you can share the resources across different applications. So you could easily share that same back end with iOS, Android, and a front end app. And you can do that with your regular back end as well. But the nice thing about a back end as a service is it will generate the API for you based on your back end uh, that you've configured. Uh, another thing, so it's easier to manage and you don't have to go maintain those servers. There's less general maintenance because there's less code. If someone's already written that code and, and tested it fully, you don't have to maintain that at, at all. And then you get all the benefits of platform as a service as well. So easy scaling, built-in service management, and you need fewer developers, things like that. There, Of course, there are pros of being just writing your own backend. And that would be, you know, if you need something that's really custom or you need it to be super performant, if you need full control over every little bit or some special security concern that none of the backend as a service providers give to you, those are all pros of writing your own backend. So one of the things that really concerns me about this pattern is vendor lock-in. Can you, can you comment on that? Like, for example, one of the examples you just gave is what if I suddenly, when I start my app, I don't have this special security requirement or this special control that I need. But then, you know, six months into my app development, I realize, oh, no, I can't do this with my back end as a service. Now I've got to, like, rewrite the whole thing. Is that true or is there a, a better way out? You know, that's a fantastic question. I'm a big fan of open source. And there are uh, quite a few open source back end as a service solutions that if you start with one of those, you don't have to worry about that at all because you could, it's written with standards already that you could just take the system, call it your own, change everything to work the way you need it to and be good to go. So at that point, you're deploying your own backend as a service with one customer and it's you, right? Exactly. Yep. So that's a, I mean, that's a price you have to be willing to pay because I'm sure that these backend systems are costly to maintain and, and to, you know, deploy and whatnot. Now all those concerns are on your lap, right? They are to a degree, but not as much as you would think. So they're actually built to be easy to deploy. So let's take a Apache user grid, for example. So Apache user grid was actually 
created or purchased, I'm not sure, by Apago a couple of years ago, and then it was donated to Apache. So it's a, an incubator project there right now. Well, UserGrid can't find the quote right now, but it's currently being run by Apache Telecom on thousands of servers and has auto-scaling across all of that. So if you want another Apache UserGrid server, you just spin up a new VM and throw UserGrid on there and tell it where the cluster is. That's my understanding. You know, Don't quote me on that entirely. I haven't worked with UserGrid in that big of a situation. And then, uh, but UserGrid is built on a full uh, Java stack. So if your teams are familiar with Java and you get that situation where you need something super custom, you've got, you can't do it within the framework that UserGrid provides. You can take that system, spin it up in an IDE, and make your changes on your own, and then redeploy it. Okay. Would you say that it, that this kind of service is particularly attractive to mobile developers and that you're, there's more adoption in that community than there is in the like single page app web development community? Oh yeah, definitely. So this is, this is coming to a point of maturity within the mobile community. Are you all familiar with the uh, Gartner hype cycle? No. Yes. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I'll explain a little bit. So this is just a, there's a little graph, go look it up, Gartner hype cycle. And, uh, it, any new technology that comes out goes through this cycle where it starts, nobody knows about it, kind of goes, people start learning more about it more and more and more, and then it gets to this peak where people are just in love with this technology. They think it's the most fantastic thing out there. And then there are all the naysayers come in and say, oh, it's horrible because of this, that, and the other. And so it goes through what Gardner calls the trough of disillusionment, where people are unhappy with it. And they think, oh, it's the worst thing ever. And then it kind of people realize that, well, it's not the worst thing ever. There's just some different ways of working with it than we realized. It really does provide value. And so then it comes to people start using it more and more again to what they call the plateau of productivity, fancy words. But essentially, it just becomes a mainstream product that people use. And I've seen this firsthand with NoSQL. I think people can say that in general with NoSQL is it came out and a lot of engineers were just super excited about it, super excited about everything you could do with it. And then came the naysayers saying, oh, but it doesn't persist all your data. There's all these problems with it. It's not great. And now it's come back to something that's in common usage and is used all over the place. So am I the only one who thought of Lord of the Rings with the Gartner hype cycle? Like, First, you have to ascend the peak of inflated expectations and then slog <laughs> through the trough of disillusionment, finally climb the slope of enlightenment, and then you reach Mordor. Right. <laughs> and then you throw the ring in. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So so now that we're at Mordor with NoSQL, I don't think we're there with backend as a service. What I was going to say with that is with the mobile specifically, I think they've been through the peak of expectations, just at the peak of that, and they've gone through some of the trough already and is starting to become commonly used. I think in, in front-end uh, web application development, this is brand new. People are still learning about it. They don't trust it. They're uh, completely happy writing their own backends at this point. Yeah, because two, three years ago, we were all doing that. Like we, you know, we weren't writing single-page apps. That's right. That's exactly but, uh, right. So this is all really new. You know, and I think it's interesting because as web developers, I think we've often conflated the idea of the back-end service with the same service that has to host our front-end code. You know, and in the mobile world, they haven't done that because it's simply not possible, 
right? That's right. That's, and so that's these mobile point. developers are like, how do I get a server? You know, and they're like, I don't have any idea how to, I don't have any idea how to do that. But these front end web developers are like, oh, I know how to do that. I'm a Rails developer. You know, like <laughs> I know how to build my own service, my web service on the back end. Yeah. But I, I actually think that as a web developer, we would do well to decouple the notion of your back end web service and the servers that serve up your HTML and your JavaScript and your CSS. You know? Because I think that that will best poise you to scale and, you know, you can deploy your web app on a CDN or something. And then the back end services are just totally separate and they're, they, the two can be deployed independently and just everything's wonderful. And that's how mobile apps are, right? Like just by their name. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And that's what I see happening with so many single page applications and uh, so many different frameworks coming out for single page application development is, uh, again, with abstraction, we're moving to focusing more on what our users care about, which is the interface. And if you can do that, like you're saying, split your service out so it's a completely separate thing, then why not move it to a backend as a service? So what about the issue that on a mobile device, it's a lot harder to hack in and intercept anything, but on web, it's much simpler. Oh, security. Yeah. Yeah, security is a great question. So all of these, I mean, if you go to the Firebase site, one of their top things that they call out is how secure their solution is. And it's, it is secure. It's all based on OAuth and grabbing your tokens and then setting up a communication between your front end and, and your back end. And so it, they handle that. Each of these systems handles it. If it doesn't, I sure wouldn't use it. <laughs> Does that answer that? Yeah, kind of. I mean, like, what about something simple like just validation of data entry fields and, and things like that? How do they handle scenarios like that where you can go in and you, no matter what kind of validation I put in in JavaScript, somebody can still go in and change a value using a console before they click the save button, right? That's, yes. What they'll do, again, I'm going to use the Firebase example because it's the easiest to explain. They have a validation schema that you just take a, a JSON-like object that contains your validation for all of your endpoints. And that is, you configure that within Firebase itself. So you go and say, endpoint user slash create new user is only accessible to, and you put a string of JavaScript in there that describes what uh, you want it to be accessible to, who you want to be able to write to that, who you want to be able to read from that endpoint, whether or not you want that endpoint to be public so anyone can get that data. So it's all configured within the backend-as-a-service system. And then can you also say things like, this field within this endpoint has to be an integer between 10 and 30 or something? I mean, does it go that level of detail? Absolutely. In Firebase specifically, it is, it's just JavaScript. It's like an if statement. Can you actually write JavaScript on the server side in Firebase to do validation? For the validation, yes. That's it's awesome. Within, it's wrapped in their own custom way of setting things up, but yeah, it's just JavaScript. I imagine they're really going to have to grow with that kind of concept a lot because only the most trivial of applications have even simple validation that doesn't require, yeah. you know, just some logic, you know, right. that's, di- that's dynamic in nature. So that's one of the reasons I've really been hesitant to embrace these ideas as like a, you know, for big projects that have a long lifespan expectancy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for like these quick projects where you want to get off the ground quickly, it makes a lot of sense to me. Maybe they'll grow with us. There you go. There you go. Well, I, uh, I did an episode of the freelancer show. Well, myself and the other panelists did. And we talked to a fellow by the name of Kurt Elster and he talked about 
how he builds these like teeny apps that you could build in an afternoon and launches them. And then he monetizes them essentially by putting like Google AdSense on them and stuff. And so it did occur to me that something like this could shorten the, the development cycle on something like that to the point where you could just put something together. I am a little bit curious, I have to admit, about the OAuth stuff that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that how people authenticate to your app is they provide an OAuth endpoint and then you can scope the data accordingly? Or how, do, how exactly does that work? So I'm going to use the Firebase example again. Their documentation is great. But you have a couple different options. With uh, Firebase, you can have them, you can use an OAuth login to one of their Facebook or to Google Plus or to any of those and get the token back and the server handles that and then handles the communication to the application. Or you can tie it, and I, I can't remember if, if Firebase does this, but I know that uh, many of the others do. You can tie it to LDAP if you want some internal enterprise thing, or you can set up your own user system within the application. That's the most common scenario if you're not doing a social login, is to use your own users within the system. And I don't think I've seen any of these that don't provide that out of the box. But the actual ins and outs of it and, and how it functions it's uh, I can't explain that easily over podcast, so I'd recommend just pulling up the site and uh, one, any one of these and looking at how their security works. So do you see this becoming as ubiquitous as platform as a service? I do. One of the biggest challenges, I think, is mindshare. And I think it's the same thing that happened in infrastructure as a service and the same thing that's happened in platform as a service. I mean, 10 years ago, if you talked to your IT guy who ran all your servers, and you said, hey, we're going to take all of your servers and we're, uh, we're going to let Google handle those or whoever the company was back then. He would have said, no way. I, I'm not giving up control over these. Uh, this, these are my babies. I've, I know how to build these and keep them running fast. But look at it now. If you talk to any IT group, if they're still running their own servers, it's either because they have some government restriction that they have to or they're just very outdated. <laughs> <laughs> no, it happens a lot in, in in big organizations too. They often still run their own servers. But for the small groups, small fry starting up your own shop, you don't have to go out and hire IT guys. People can spin up their own servers easily. Same with platform as a service. You don't have to go hire people who are super knowledgeable about scaling and reliability and security and also Linux administration. You can just spin up on deploy your application to Heroku or many of the other platforms of service vendors and scale it just with the touch of a button. So I think that backend as a service is definitely next. I view it as a, a disruptive technology because it's, you don't have to pay for those full-time backend developers. You might still have to pay for a person to manage it for you and to be the expert, but you don't have to pay for a whole team of people to manage the backend. Hmm. Now, are we so- there now? No, I don't think we're there quite yet. I but, think that, go ahead. Well, you are saying that anybody who's not looking into backend as a service right now is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think pretty I much. Yes. That. Yeah, I think that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know a number of companies who have uh, made the switch, either entirely switched their backend or they're switching pieces. So there's one company local to where I live that has switched their user authentication entirely over to UserGrid. Uh, I know another company that is looking at, oh, what's the name of that one? Oh, Piwik. 
as a way of managing their backend system for doing uh, web analytics and the web analytics that they provide to other people. And so I think that there's a lot of value to be found within this area within backend as a service ecosystem. But right now it is difficult to find the specific value for you for the reason that there are lots of services out there. And also because we have this cognitive bias against giving up something that we love, you know, something that we own. Those developers who were working on the back end for those systems that moved to back end as a service, did they get fired? And if so, are they looking for a job? Because I'm desperate to find some good people. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think that they just move up to a different level, right? They they, they move up to the front end. <laughs> I, I don't know about those specific companies. Um, so. Question for you about data security. So moving your back end to a back end as a service system seems like it would increase your risk surface a little bit. Mm-hmm. For for example, if I'm on Amazon EC2 and I've you know I'm running my own back end with my own database and stuff like that, then it's my job to protect my data. But if the VM who happens to be on the same hardware gets cracked by some attackers, my data is probably safe. But if a backend as a service system gets attacked and uh, there becomes a data breach, isn't it a much broader risk for all of the backend as a service subscribers? Yeah, that's a valid concern to think about. That's where I think that the open source vendors are going to pick up a little bit quicker. They're going to take off a little bit quicker, specifically in the web application development. Because you can take any of these systems, these open source systems, you deploy yourself onto VMs like I was talking about. And so you already own that database. It's not like someone's going to hack Apache user grid. I mean, they don't have any core servers anywhere that they can hack to get your data. It's all your servers. Same with BassBox, Loopback, Deployed, Helios. And these are all some open source vendors for backend as a service. Now, to defend a little bit the commercial vendors, this is their core business. They care a lot about keeping that data secure. Because if any leak happens, nobody will trust them anymore and everyone's going to leave. So they put a lot of energy into making sure that their systems are secure so that no worries get introduced into the marketplace. Yeah, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that if they structure it properly, then your database will probably be encrypted with a separate key than the other folks and things like that. So even if they break into the system and uh, steal a bunch of data, they'd have to steal all the keys and then they'd have to go through and decrypt each database one by one. So, you Uh, know, makes sense. You know, there are a lot of security measures that they can take that can mitigate a lot of the issues that you'd be concerned about. And so it really just comes down to how well they partition the data, how well they partition the security, and what measures they've taken to make sure that people can't just get in. Yep. Well said. And, you know, it's definitely a buyer beware, but go out and really have a good look at what they say they're doing and what the risks are. I totally agree. (laughs) I really think everyone should be looking at this to some degree because it is such a potentially disruptive technology, right? Because if a startup comes in in your space and they're doing the same thing you're doing, but they don't have the overhead cost of 10 engineers writing a backend and they can move faster because it's already, the backend is already written or super easy to configure for what they need, then you're, you've got trouble as a business. And so I, I, I think it's definitely worth looking at. It probably sounds like I poo-pooed on the idea of a backend as a service in general, but it's not true. I think they're really appropriate for young projects that you want to get off the ground quickly 
Like, why bother concerning yourself with the back end, you know, on a quick startup kind of project where you want to get going? It makes yeah, a lot exactly. of sense, I think. Like, you'd really have to convince me not to use one of these services for a project that I don't even know if it's going to exist next week, you know? What if I gave you five bucks? I'll do anything for five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it really comes down to be informed and use the right tool for the right job, you know? The other area where I think this is really beneficial is for uh, new developers who are learning. Um, I've seen developers build really cool applications as they're teaching themselves how to code. You know, like you just picked up a book on HTML and JavaScript, and with nothing else, you, without a backend as a service, you're kind of stuck, right? I mean, there's a lot of technologies, like you said, to get started, but this really helps you jumpstart that and get going. So I think for new developers, it's a great tool. Yeah, it really re- removes that mental overhead. Oh, yeah, especially Firebase. I think they've done a particularly good job at getting that going. I mean, as a new developer, you're probably going to make a lot of mistakes with it and have security problems and whatnot, but at least you'll get (laughs) off the ground and get your stuff going, you know? That's right. And Firebase is really geared toward the JavaScript application developer. It's one of the few that started from the get-go being geared toward JavaScript. And so I, I think you'll see others coming to the market that are equally as good in that way. If you're trying to learn iOS development, you need a backend, same sort of thing. There's lots of services out there you can just get going without having to worry about them. All right. Well, anything else that we should go over with this, things that we haven't considered before we get into the picks? The key to me is complexity gets abstracted and things move up the stack. That was a quote by the uh, Heroku CEO, but with uh, complexity continuing to become abstracted, we need to be sure we're ahead of things so that we don't get booted out of the stack. Isn't he the same guy who said with great power comes great responsibility? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. That's it. We're going back to Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's a cool mashup. Spider-Man in the Lord of the Rings universe. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Where do I, I sign it. up? I'm already starting my Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure. I have two picks. One of them most people are probably already familiar with, but I wanted to pick it because I used the service recently and really enjoyed it. And that is Airbnb, which is a uh, online service for basically staying in other people's homes and apartments when you travel instead of hotels. Plus so one. Most people are familiar with it. I have not used it, but I am going to use it at the end of this month for the first time. So I'm a little nervous. But uh, the process for getting signed up and everything was really cool. And I like their UI and I, I really enjoyed it. So that's my first pick. Is that something you do with or without permission? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so a competitor to Airbnb would be a website that tells you when your neighbors and friends are going to be out of town so you can steal their apartment. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So my second pick is actually a Vim plugin called Align, A-L-I-G-N. And this plugin appeals to me because I am OCD with how I lay out my code. So like if I'm writing a JavaScript object literal and it's got a bunch of keys on the left and colons and then values on the right, I like those to all be vertically aligned with each other. And the align plugin lets me select a block of text from a like a JSON, a JavaScript object literal and hit the uh, align command and poof, it lines them all up. So I can be OCD and fast. Does it say poof? <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what are your picks? My first pick is going to be Xanax for people with lots of OCD. <laughs> Dave, that was a jibe at you. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Message received. <laughs> uh, no, that will not be one of my picks. 
I'm going to pick a TED Talk given by, he's the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic about appreciating classical music. And it's like one of those talks that's just absolutely amazing. The guy's name is Benjamin Zander, who gives the talk. It's just the most beautiful, wonderful, an incredible TED Talk about appreciating classical music. And his whole point is anybody who doesn't appreciate classical music just hasn't been exposed to it in the right way. And his whole talk is about this. And he, it's it's a great example of a, just a great talk in general. And also it's got beautiful, amazing music. And the way that he presents the topic is just so compelling. So that'll be my first pick. My second pick will be a new book published by the guy who writes the What If comic. And it's the What If, sorry, the XKCD comic, and he also publishes a weekly What If. And it's a book about What If, so it's him republishing some of the articles he's already written from his What If, which is basically readers send in What If questions, and he'll answer them things about science and physics, you know, like, what if you had all the money in the world, for example, is one of the questions. And he talks about what it would be like if all the coins and paper money in the world was consolidated to one physical spot, what that would be like physically. And very interesting stuff. So it's a book. You can get it on Amazon. And if you have Amazon Prime, then it's free. It's one of those free books you get with the Prime upgrade. So that'll be my second and final pick. Awesome. Uh, Merrick, what are your picks? So I have three picks. First is the DOS keyboard with brown switches. It's a... relatively new. It's awesome because it's got like this volume knob on it, which just makes you feel legit. Second one is this Chrome plugin called Momentum, and it's sort of as like, I don't know, it's a prettier new tab page, but it's it's pretty cool. And uh, my last and most important pick is that it's actually going to be International OCD Awareness Week. <laughs> um, let's see, the 13th through the 19th. But yeah, it, it, uh, if you don't know much about OCD or what have you, it's about one in a hundred adults actually have it, so it's something worth becoming aware of. So yeah, that's the last pick. All right. Well, I've got a couple of books I want to pick. The first one is a fiction book. It is The Emperor's Soul by Brandon Sanderson. I enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, it was good. I'm not liking it quite as much as the Iron Druid Chronicles, but it is you know it was enjoyable. And then the other book is a book that is a classic. It's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And it is so good that I'm almost done with it and I'm going to go back and reread it as soon as I'm done. I'm actually tempted to put together a study group where we talk about like one chapter a week and do it more of a mastermind group style as opposed to like an open discussion style. And the reason is, is because it delves a lot into who you are and what you want. And I want people to feel like they can talk about their business or their life or whatever else they're working on and do so in kind of a confidential setting. And so we probably will use Google Plus or Skype or something for the discussions. But anyway, if you're interested in something like that, you can email me, Chuck, at devchat.tv, and I would be delighted to put something together. Those are my picks. Uh, Ryan, what are your picks? So I got to pick WebStorm, first of all. I absolutely love the WebStorm IDE in all of its flavors, You know, depending on if you do Ruby or... Java backend, they've got different IDEs, but those guys at JetBrains make an awesome, awesome tool. Uh, so that's one. Next one would be the Traveler Guitars. 
Uh, have you guys ever heard of these? They're a small guitar, but with a full-size neck. I don't know if any of you play guitar, but they're awesome. I picked one up, and I use it to practice during lunch, and uh, I can just plug my earphones in, flip a switch so I've got distortion, and, and just rock away. <laughs> and then uh, my third one is Zion National Park. I hadn't ever been there until earlier this year. But, oh, my gosh, it was the most beautiful national park I've ever been to. I got there early in the morning. The sun came, and the shadows on the canyon walls were just amazing. Or if you know about the sublime, that's like, it was just awesome, almost a spiritual experience. So highly recommend Zion National Park. There you go. Those are my picks. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Ryan. If people want to uh, get a hold of you, what are the best ways to do that? You can get me on Twitter at Pickled Ego. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks, thanks, man. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, We'll augment your team and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. This episode is sponsored by Raygon.io. If at any point your application is crashing, what would that cost you? Lost users, customers, revenue? Raygun is an essential tool for every developer. Raygun takes minutes to integrate and you'll be notified of your software bugs as they happen with automatic notifications, a full stack trace to detect, diagnose, and fix errors in record time. Raygun works with all major mobile and web programming languages in a matter of minutes. Try it for free today at raygun.io. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 